Hello and welcome to Foresight with me, Greg Williams. We're living in the era of the entrepreneur. Never has it been easier to build companies based on great ideas. You can purchase software that you need for customer acquisition and back office operations. You can buy cloud storage and scale AI software up and down depending on your needs. Capital is abundant and it's never been easier to access. On today's program, we'll be talking to one of Silicon Valley's most storied entrepreneurs and investors to try and understand the different strategies that entrepreneurs can use to drive a company's growth. Reid Hoffman is the co-founder of LinkedIn and a partner at VC firm Greylock. He's both an accomplished entrepreneur and executive who's played an integral role in building many of today's leading consumer technology businesses, including LinkedIn and PayPal. You might have even used one of the companies that he's invested in today. If you've used Facebook and Airbnb, he was instrumental in the success of both of these companies. Some of the areas we'll be focusing on include where ideas come from, the good ones that is, how to build trust with partners and potential hires, how you hire talent, how you build and maintain culture, how founders can stay focused on the long term, and where the great opportunities are for founders in the next three to five years. Reid has gleaned this information from founders and leaders in his podcast, Masters of Scale, in which he's interviewed people who have the mindset to build something meaningful. Reid will be joined by June Cohen, who's co-founder at the media company behind Masters of Scale. June has extensive knowledge of Silicon Valley. She's the former executive producer of TED Media and, wouldn't you know it, was an early employee of Wired. Enjoy the conversation. Greg, awesome to be here. I've been a fan of Wired for my entire life. That's great. Thank you, Reid. Likewise, Greg. So lovely to be here. As you know, I spent years of my life, in fact, my formative career years at Wired. So couldn't be more happy to talk to you. Great. Feels like a reunion. Um, so, you know, Juno and alumnus and, and Reid also has been on our cover. So excited to have you guys here. Thank you so much. So really enjoyed the book. Um, let's get into that. The title uh, masters of scale. I'm really interested just to get a sense from both of you of how you define scale in this instance. Are you thinking about users or valuation revenue? How do you guys think about that? So the way that I think about scale is a kind of three variable multiplier. It's the number of people that you touch and engage, the depth of that touch and engagement. So like how important are you to your life? How important are you to the kind of the way that they navigate the world? And then time, how do you do that over the time? So it's kind of an X times Y times Z variable. Now, obviously in different uh, organizations, different businesses, different institutions that cashes out different ways. Sometimes, you know, that's that's a, a question of going on really uh, like like a lot of depth, navigating their entire life. And sometimes that's, you know, somewhat more light uh, entertainment, you know, Netflix, watching a watching a, a, a um, uh, you know, some kind of interesting series. But it's those three variables together. And then the institutions that provide that. I'll build on that, Greg, by saying when I think about scale, in the context of Masters of Scale, I think the, the the multitude of our listeners and readers are thinking about scaling a business, but many of them are also thinking about how to scale an organization and how to scale an idea. And for me, when I think about scale, and you need many of the same skills and the same mindset, whether you're scaling an organization or you're scaling an idea. And I probably focus on mainly on two of those dimensions that Reed mentioned, the number of people you reach and the depth of your impact on their life. Right. Well, June, you, you talk about this, uh, you know, the idea 
Um, the challenge with many startups and, and their ideas is they're fundamental, fundamentally kind of contrarian, as you point out in the book, which is why investors tend to shy away from them. Uh, I just wonder what advice you have for entrepreneurs in terms of how do they get over that hurdle of like the new thing, the thing that maybe people haven't thought about before that doesn't maybe make sense in, in that moment? Well, one of the really key things to look at in this is to say, how do you frame this as the way the world should be or the way the world could be? Like, what's the, what is that future pole star that you're, you're looking at? And fortunately, on the kind of entrepreneurial investment path, you don't need to have every investor say yes. You just need to have one or more of the right investors say yes. And so the, it's, it, it's, a, it's a way of joining forces. It's a way of forming an alliance to go create that world. So you say, well, this is the world. This is why I see it. Could, it, it it's possible. And even though, you know, for example, like Airbnb or LinkedIn or PayPal, you'd say, well, actually, in fact, I don't see this entirely new thing that, that's potentially in the world. It's like, well, but here is, if we cross this hurdle, if we make this, if, if we play out this circumstance in the world and it, it plays the way that our theory is, our theory of the game is, then we've made the world a much better place. And that's, that's the kind of the contrarian, but hopefully right, uh, approach to building, you know, kind of massive new businesses, products, ecosystems, you know, in the world. And I'll build on that. Um Greg, I feel like this fundamental insight from Reed on that the idea that great ideas are often contrarian is so essential to entrepreneurs. And there's a really key lesson I've learned from it that I think many entrepreneurs can learn from, which is that when you have a big idea and you can really see the future, do not expect that other people can see it. There's a reason that other people couldn't see it. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs make the mistake of thinking, I have a brilliant idea and expecting everybody to kind of create a parade for them and say, wow, that is a great idea. What actually, when you have a truly truly big idea, you will almost universally hear people say, no, they can't see it. It is not a good idea. And you need to expect that as an entrepreneur, expect the no and expect to both find people who can see it, help them reason toward a yes, and also help them improve your idea. Even if it is a big contrarian idea, there's always room uh, to build around it. And read that is another piece of advice I always love hearing you talk about. And it's, it's one of the reasons we have a whole chapter on it uh, in the book, because it's what to do with the no's. Because if you're doing a contrarian idea, you will get a lot of no's. And you want to make that a productive interaction, not a not a, just a waste of time. Yeah, I thought that was a really nice way to frame it. The whole idea of, you know, that, that as you say, being it being a productive uh, interaction rather than something that is actually deflating and uh, and causes you to sort of move off your path. So um, I just wanted to, to touch on that kind of whole idea of, you know, being invested in the idea and, and most importantly, being able to kind of communicate it. Um, I think there was a quote from John Durr that, you know, from uh, Kleiner Perkins, who argued that the truly great ventures are, are led by by missionaries, not, not mercenaries. Um, would you go along with that, with your experience of meeting entrepreneurs and, and, and also people working in more corporate environments? Uh, very broadly, yes. Um, like all of these things, they are broad brush heuristics. So uh, you do occasionally see amazing businesses or amazing institutions built by a fundamentally a kind of a mercenary approach. But the vast majority uh, fall within mission. It's one of the reasons why within the podcast and the book, we talk about culture so much. Uh, it's one of the things that, for example, um, as as going to the extra mile, one of the things that Jeff Weiner at LinkedIn uh 
was recruiting for. He says, it isn't come work for me, it's come work for the mission. We will work for the mission together. And that creates a very healthy organization that also, of course, has the, uh, you know, part of when you're actually going through the various dark times and challenges that you have in startups and you have the people really committed to the change you're making in the world, it's much more human, much more healthy to be committed to the mission of what you're doing. Now that doesn't, the, the business is an essential part of the mission. The way you deliver the mission is a great business. So it's not, it's not, it's, it's not saying, oh, you know, put the business to the side, but it's that mission about what you're doing in the world and what you're doing for the society and the people in the world, for your employees, for your customers, you know, uh, for your, for your investors, uh, you know, th that together is the thing that actually, in fact, is typically how you build these amazing, you know, businesses and institutions. One of the things I love about many of the missionaries in this definition that we've talked to on Masters of Scale is that you will often see among some of the greatest a dual mission. Um, so you see that, for example, in Starbucks, Howard Schultz was a missionary about coffee and coffee culture in the U.S. He was also a missionary about middle class job creation. And um, you often see a kind of a, an external and internal mission playing out among the most extraordinary entrepreneurs. And it's not always exactly the mission you expect. Right, right. And and I think that I'm, I'm interested in kind of getting your sense also of like just stepping back a little bit. And, you know, we, we, we've had some for many years now, I think, in the Valley and what just the technology industry generally has tended to kind of promote this idea of like the lone genius, the the person working you know, in the garage, uh, who kind of suddenly comes up with the idea that changes everything, and they've they've done this whole kind of thing uh, pretty much on their own. It's like this this kind of project and this mission that they've had. I mean, you've spoken to so many founders, both of you, over the years. This this is clearly a myth. But where do you, where do you guys think the good ideas from? How do they how do they surface? How do they uh, become something that becomes real and tangible? Well, it's one of the reasons why, because part of the question is, is there's a lot of ideas where the time isn't now, the time is later. Choosing the timing or getting lucky in the timing, you know, some combination of those two is is frequently very important. And how you make that judgment to know the time is now for virtual worlds, the time is now for Web3, or the time is now for artificial intelligence is frequently by being part of the community, being part of the network. It's part of the reason why, you know, we, you know, kind of build this this kind of large penumbra around Masters of Scale and why we do, uh, you know, books and events and all the rest of the stuff doing it. Because being part of that, the discussion and the dialogue helps you recognize, oh, actually, in fact, the time for this kind of product, this kind of uh, new reinvention, this new revolution is actually, in fact, upon us. And it is now something we can build. And then, by the way, of course, this is the way to bring it to market now, because like, for example, if I were to refound LinkedIn today, which obviously if LinkedIn didn't exist, I would actually do it in a different way, because the way you do it also depends on what is the current zeitgeist? What is the current way that people encounter products? What is the current people, uh, way that people bring products to market? You know, all of this is actually, in fact, really important. So being part of the, the, the knowledgeable dialogue, the network, the community um, is actually, in fact, essential for uh, crossing over from the 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 madness of seeing the future into uh, sometimes the luck of genius. I think built into that is um, going back to your original question, Greg. That no 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 idea just springs from a person's head, completely formed. 
the um, there is always a network of people, whether they are close colleagues or distant colleagues, that help improve an idea and bring it to life, which is one of the things that many people miss. I think there's also a really interesting point around what it takes to found a company in the in the media and in the popular imagination. There is always a fascination with one founder. And Reed, I remember one of my favorite early insights I learned from you is that it is actually often not the best idea to just have a single founder. Maybe you could actually talk to that for a moment. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the things that, and this is one of the benefits of having so much startup activity in Silicon Valley and, you know, firms like Greylock, where you could see, you've seen, you know, 60 years of, of entrepreneurial efforts, is that actually, in fact, you're much better off with two to three co-founders, um, where they uh, have complementary skill sets, reinforcing, can do things, because it helps give you a much better, uh, broader cognitive capabilities. It helps you um, divide up uh, all of the critical firefighting work at the various stages of startups. And so, you know, people frequently say, well, you know, Bill Gates, but actually there was Paul Allen. Um, you know, they, they um, you know, and, and it actually it goes through a number of this, like there were co-founders with Mark Zuckerberg and in, in, in Facebook. There are a number of places where you look at it, and even though, you know, the press tends to exalt the CEO, the founder, uh, that's actually, in fact, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, life is much more of a team sport uh, than it is an individual sport. And actually, in fact, the various ways that you form uh, teams, including having a co-founder to make you a much more uh, strong and much more uh, capable in what you can achieve. And, and let's just touch on that co-founder um, dynamic a little bit. Like, what advice do you have for people who maybe are, you know, co-founders? Maybe they've got a, um, you know, they're working with another person or maybe two people. Like, how do you sort of, do you, is, is it about delegating and thinking out, okay, people are going to take very specific roles within the organization? Is it about people playing to their their skills, the skill set that they have? Like, how best do you think that that can work uh, within, you know, what is a very complex uh, and, and, and also fast moving uh, situation for, for most founders, especially in that kind of like early stage of a company? Well, there's a couple of key principles. One is it's always clear, even when you have two or three co-founders, who's the CEO um, and she or he should be the um you know, kind of the person who ultimately makes decisions, even though there's a there's a group, uh, you know, kind of working together. Uh, the second thing is 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 that what you want is even though you'd say, well, this person's the engineering person, or this person's the product person, or this person's the salesperson, or this person's the you know general operator, um, you want everyone to be fairly generalist. Uh, even though one person might be the head of product development, one person might be head of sales, you know, or kind of like that's the background where they have it. Everyone is actually, in fact, going out and doing recruiting. Everyone's figuring out, you know, well, what, how should we be, uh, how should we be bringing in our network in order to do financing or figuring out a go to market. Uh, you know, like all of that is 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 done. And then some of the the, the division of work actually happens to be the. Well, look, right now, um, I need to be doing this. So you need to go talk to the person. None of us are the marketing person. You need to go be talking to this person that we're thinking about bringing on as, as our first marketing person and figuring it out. And so it's a combination of a set of skills, which can be complementary, but also what we refer to in the book and the podcast as an infinite learner, because um, that, that learning curve is essential. And that's, of course, part of the reason why like we also are doing these courses apps because of the mindset of learning and being an infinite learner is absolutely essential uh, for being successful as a scale entrepreneur. I mean, in fact, I, I literally do not know one <laughs> uh, successful scale entrepreneur who isn't 
an infinite learner. Right. The phrase I always love from it that I repeat to to my startup team daily, at least, is um, not just being an infinite learner, but learning to unlearn. That um, there are so many things that you learn when you're in a fast-scaling company or a fast-scaling industry. At very frequent points, what got you here won't get you there. The techniques, like the, the brilliance you had that got you to this point, you have to like not just set aside, but completely unlearn to get yourself to the next level of scale and impact. And that phrase has been infinitely helpful. Yeah. And part of that is like, for example, our very first episode of Master Scale was uh, with Brian Chesky of Airbnb and, and Handcrafted. And, and people normally say with an engineering mindset, you never do handcrafted stuff. You have to build the very scalable thing from the beginning. And actually, in fact, frequently through the entire phase of the journey, you're doing handcrafted stuff as you, as you do it in order to, to figure it out, in order to get the right creativity, in order to get the right innovation, inspiration. And then you were taking that and you'd say, well, I learned it by doing handcrafting. It's like, no, no, now you're figuring out how does that get built into the scale ecosystem, which frequently is another invention, another change, another unlearning and another learning in order to make it happen. So let's take this kind of, you know, an example of, a, of an early stage startup. We have our, our, our co-founders. We have, let's just say they've got some, you know, some investors, they've got capital. Um, they have a great product. Um, they, they have a product market fit. They need to make those early hires, though, the kind of like the, the, the team that they're going to build around them. What advice do you have for like early stage founders? How should they approach those those crucial early stage hires? Well, this is the thing that most runs through the book and the and the podcast, because, you know, part of it is uh, we have everything from Anil Bushri, who, uh, you know, did kind of cultural interviews because the culture gets built out very early. So one of the things that even though there's a lot of uh, solve this problem right now. Like what I what I say in blitzscaling is hire Ms. right now versus uh, Ms. right because it's uh, the person who can can go the next year or two. You're not trying to hire the person for ten years from now. You're hiring the person at this stage, and hopefully they'll they're learning and they can grow and they're they're general and flexible, and you're going to help them and all the rest. That's the the hope. But you know things reconfigure as as ways of doing it. And so, uh, and then we recently had an uh, a episode with Paul English, who you know kind of has this this principle of uh, I hear the name and I want to have made a decision and have them an offer in hand within seven days because of the importance of speed, <laughs> right? And 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 each and by the way, the importance of speed is really critical. Like the the metaphor I use for startups is you jump off a cliff, you assemble an airplane on the way down. Well, well, you better be working fast because the ground is coming, and so uh, and so so all of that kind of goes into what you're doing for putting in those those the, those kind of initial people. So you want to make sure there's a bedrock of culture, a bedrock of kind of learning, a bedrock of that kind of flexibility of initial of initial thing. And then an ability to kind of run across the this uneven ground in the night that that is that is startups uh, for for making it happen. And then of course after that, these are general principles. It gets down to what you're specific doing, what your specific culture is, what your specific team, market, etc. And sometimes it can be slower, and sometimes it needs to be absolutely as fast as possible. One of the things I love in the stories that we pull together on Masters of Scale is the way they often. Um, conflict with each other depending on your strategy. As Reed said, so you have Paul English and his, both of these, the advice of both of these founders blew my minds and changed my behavior with Paul English saying like, give yourself seven days from the time you learn of a great employee to whether you are giving them a, um, a, a, an offer letter or letting them pass. Like that is an extraordinarily short timeline. And he also has 
incredibly good advice on how to get there. Like it's not just speed, but precision in your question. I've actually changed my interview. And I, I consider myself an excellent interviewer, but um, I've changed my interview questions based on Paul English's tactics. Um, on the other end of the spectrum is Anil Boussari, as, as Reed mentioned, CEO of Workday, which is now many thousands of employees. But he and his co-founder individually interviewed the first 500 hires, 500 they did the first cultural interview on. Now, Reed would point out in the background that he, Anil was in a different environment than Paul English, who was founding Kayak, and he needed to move fast because travel is competitive. Anil knew that he didn't have quite as competitive an industry. He could take a little more time on his hiring and get and tune to get it right. But it's a kind of those range of tactics of how you think about finding the people that will build your company is key. And one of the things there, Greg, to just land on for a moment that is contrarian, I think that most people still think of hiring as a mundane task, like just fit person, you know, widget person A into task slot B. And that's not it. Like hiring is, it is your company. The people you bring in determine everything about who you are and who what you can be. It's just to, it is the most important element of, of a company's growth. And that is so under acknowledged in in the wider business world you know i'd love to know more about your interview technique is there is there a particular question that you always feel is the question you can ask a candidate that will really get to the kind of like the truth of whether they're a fit or not i'll give you three i am and i bet reed has a couple too minor um my i always do the cultural interview i'm trying to understand what is this person's story what will make that this is actually a theme of this is the theme of the Masters of Scale episode that features Reed Hoffman as the star. And the idea is that um, everyone has to be a hero in their own story. So you need to recruit people to your company, understand not how they'll be a hero in your story, like what they can do for you, but what makes them a hero in their story. And what I'm trying to understand is what matters to this person and what motivates them. And is this the right role for them? Not can they, not do they have the skills. My team has already figured that out. Um, so I ask... Um, I ask about their favorite collaboration because we have a very collaborative culture. And what I'm trying to understand is, do they tell me something that's actually collaborative or do they give an example where they were a solo performer or where it was a great collaboration because I came up with all the ideas and everyone did what I said. That's what I'm listening for. Not the project, but how they think about collaboration. I've added a few things onto that. That isn't the Paul English episode about um, getting them to talk a little bit more about the people on the team. There's some reflection I've added to that. Another thing I always ask is I ask people, um, it seems like a throwaway question. And I even say, this seems like a throwaway question, but looking back on everything you did, what are you most proud of? I'm not looking for their most magnificent um, accomplishment, McKinsey style. I'm trying to understand what actually mattered to them. And they very rarely say what I expect, but that helps me understand what matters to them deeply. And then I ask them, when you think, my last question is always, when you think about a time at work, when you are happiest, what are those conditions under which you really thrive? And it is always revealing. I interviewed someone a couple of weeks ago who said some great things about collaboration. And then like, and then I love to be able to review things and really have time. Uh, like when it isn't like get it done by Friday, but it's like, I have time to, to think. And I'm like, oh, that's not us. It's actually, it's not us. Like we are always get it done yesterday and we're a startup. And so I actually found in the very last question a fundamental disconnect in what could actually help this person to thrive because we are very fast moving. We're not we're collaborative, but not uh, take your time and reflect kind of organization. So anyway, those are those are three tactics. I bet Reed has a, 
at least one to add on to that. Well, and we can we could actually spend an hours on this because as because hiring is really important. But here's a few. So one is, um, you know, one of the things that's really key, uh, especially in startups, and especially in scale ups and, and, and blitz scaling is learning. So uh, I look for is a personal learner and are they an explicit learner? So it's kind of go to a, a project that they use like what's a project that you, um, you know, was a notable project, something you're proud of, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, now what would you tell your younger self to do differently? Uh, because if you wouldn't, if you didn't get through that and you didn't learn something that you would do differently, then you wouldn't, you, you know, like then you haven't actually been learning as you've been doing it. And then uh, ex, uh, part of being able to say it as being an explicit learner is part of how a team becomes a learner is that you can trade your learnings together in in expression and in, in like, oh, here's what I learned. Here's what I learned. Here's a principle. Here's something to watch out for. Here's a question to ask, et cetera. And, you know, those things are are part of it. Similarly, um, I'll frequently uh, kind of say, well, what, who are some of the people that you um, have uh, most respected working for? What'd you learn from them? Like what, what was the kind of learning? Cause that's also, by the way, a team uh, sport and a team mentality. And then very last, you know, June has heard this from me for years now, but uh, as much as I think interviewing is really important and things to do, cultural fit, et cetera, if I had to pick between interviewing and reference checking, I always take reference checking because finding the that kind of the the off balance reference uh, where, you know, you kind of like, for example, one of the questions that I always ask is to say, well, what's what is the person most challenged on? And if you say something like uh, too perfectionist or or works too hard or something. I'll presume that it's so bad you can't tell me, um, and and so you 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 tend to get a uh, especially as you ask two or three people, you tend to get a really good sense of what the kind of the strengths and weaknesses are because the truth of the matter is strengths and weaknesses go together. Someone who is extremely detailed and extremely precise in all these things tends to be the, I need to work on projects like that. And someone who tends to be very creative might be a little bit more slipshod operationally. I mean, these are not exact, you know, kind of rules and pairings, but but strengths and weaknesses do to go together. And you want to see what, they, what the shape of a person looks like because they may be perfect for the team. There may be ways you compose the team and putting people's strengths together to get the strongest possible team. Once more, why it's a team sport. But those are all uh, kind of details into interviewing and hiring that are essential for any scale project. Yeah, those are great guys that really, really helpful sort of like thoughts on, on hiring. So just carrying on with this kind of like idea of this kind of, you know, fictional sort of startup, it's going along, things are going well, um, and then there's kind of bumps in the road, right? Um, and we are all going to face challenges throughout our careers and throughout our professional lives and, and markets change and, you know, whatever there are unexpected, uh, unexpected events uh, in business. Like, do you feel that like resilience is something that can be well obviously all entrepreneurs need it but is it something that can be learned or is it something that fundamentally has to be in the character of the person that's uh, of the founder or the person who's uh, running the organization one of the things as as June has known from years of working with me is there's always these kind of false dichotomies it's a or b and it's always a and b some of us are perhaps luckier because we, uh, you know, went through a, you know, a, a character or a childhood or something else that gave us more resilience. Um, you know, kind of is is more in the character, and some of us need to learn it. But I think it's always learnable to improve. It's part of the reason why, you know, we focus on the courses side of this on mindset. 
because actually, in fact, whether it's being creative, whether it's being, you know, kind of um, how you play on a team or being resilient to adversity, which is extremely important in entrepreneurial circumstances, because, you know, um, one of the things that I tell entrepreneurs I work with is we always have multiple valleys of the shadow moment. And it's like, why did I ever think this was a good idea? <laughs> you know, it's all going to come crashing down on my head. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Uh, and the resilience to get through that. Now, that's, again, you know, one, uh, kind of like how you learn it, how you have the grit, how you do that. But it's also one of the reasons to have co-founders and have a team because you also uh, get through it together and you help reinforce for the week, week, we can, we can not only survive this, but we can turn it in, into thriving and we can make it work. And that's absolutely essential. And if you're not ready for that uh, roller coaster journey, well, start start training, get the mindset ready, <laughs> right, and, and and make that part of your your entrepreneurial mindset. So let's, we don't have much time left. So it's, I've got two more questions that I really love to to get your thoughts on. First of all, sort of like a, a, a sort of slightly different question, really. But you know, we, we we talked a lot about the valley and obviously sort of like the um, incredible sort of story of the last 50, 60 years. Let's look beyond the U.S. and the valley, and I'm just interested to get your sense of where you're seeing the most dynamic entrepreneurial activity there, and uh, and what sort of that that tells us about about the future. So I think the good news is, is there's great entrepreneurial activity happening, you know, even in what from the Valley may seem fairly remote areas of the world. I've seen interesting startups in Africa. Um, I've seen stuff happening in the Middle East where you think, well, maybe there'll be more Middle East peace because there'll be construction of, of businesses and services. Um, and I myself have been very active in this, uh, a organization called Endeavor, an organization out of London called Entrepreneur First. Uh, part of the reason why we do Masters of Scale, why we do, uh, you know, writing the book, everything else is to help entrepreneurs everywhere because it's part of how you create the future. And, you know, there's different different strengths. Like, you know, sometimes you need an in-depth technical basis and a, and, a, and, a, and a deeply a place where you can aggregate a lot of technical talent uh, and that will, you know, put you in a certain locations. Um, and other times, um, you know, you can always you, like there's always entrepreneurial opportunity in any place where you have, you know, some um, uh, kind of stability of society and some you know, kind of rule of law. Sometimes things are so broken, civil war, et cetera, it's, it's just, you know, impossibly hard. But if you can can do that, there's always entrepreneurial opportunity. And then the, it's kind of like, well, what's what's the opportunity that's in front of you? I'd add in that this is an area where we've seen stunning change in the five years since we launched the Masters of Scale podcast. In our first season, we had Linda Rotenberg, the C the executive director, CEO of Endeavor, who has been building startup ecosystems around the world for 20 years the title of the episode was Where's the Next Silicon Valley? And I think overall read and the episode took a, an approach of like China, yes, elsewhere, tough. Um, five years later, it's a really different picture. And in fact, um, so Endeavor has had a stunning success scaling companies. They've invested in uh, more unicorns uh, worldwide than all but two other funds. Um, a large percentage of, two, of, um, of unicorns are coming out of uh, places other than China, U.S. and India. Um, in fact, Greg, at, we're, we're convening this April for the very first time, we're convening the first Masters of Scale Summit. And Linda will be a speaker in the first session, deliberately placed there to upend our outdated ideas of the pure dominance of Silicon Valley, that there is a very different story that's unfolding around the world, and we are not yet fully aware of it in the U.S.
hundred percent. You know, go to Tel Aviv, go to Stockholm, Lisbon. You know, there's a lot happening. London, Paris. It's, 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 Europe, I think, is uh, is, a, is is a real sort of it's it's changed beyond belief in the last sort of five to ten years. Um, which is terrific to see. So one final question uh, for, for you guys, um, just looking forward, you know, just thinking about the way that, you know, behaviors are changing, technology is changing, geopolitics is changing. What do you think the great opportunities are for the founder, for founders in the next sort of, you know, three to five years? If you were setting out now to to start a, a, a business, you know, that, that was maybe sort of something that maybe isn't an area that you've uh, you've, you've worked in before. Where would you be? Look, what would you be looking at? What would it really excite you and think there's a lot of opportunity? Well, one thing that is kind of growing and unique, I'd say, within my experience, is how many uh, different technological areas are in fact uh, going. You know, you could say, well, it's artificial intelligence. Oh, oh no, oh, Web three. Uh, or augmented reality and virtual reality, uh, synthetic biology, um, breakthroughs in energy. You know, like it's just like there is there's just tons of interesting work, you know, in in all of this, uh, these different areas. I mean, for example, um, you know, I've even done an investment in Boom, the uh, supersonic plane company. Like it's just it's across all of these different um uh, these areas. And so I think there's just uh, a ton of it. And also, by the way, when you get to kind of uh, volatility and, you know, kind of challenges, you know, pandemic is an economic asteroid uh, hitting the, the, the economy, uh, you know, the planet's economy. In crisis and in volatility, there is also entrepreneurial opportunity. That's part of the, it's that, that reset, the, 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 the new opportunities. And I think that's, that's the reason why I think it's very broad indeed. I, well, I scribbled down some notes from Reed's answer, and I'll answer just in a different direction, Greg. I, I um, observe a huge opportunity for different types of founders, and that's a, a trend that we have spoken to and encouraged on our show since the beginning, that there is a, an outdated idea that of, of what a founder looks like, what's the personality profile and age profile and gender and race profile of a founder, and there is an increasing both recognition and just appetite um, both in the funding communities, in the educational communities, and in 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 um, entrepreneurial communities in in general, to support all types of founders, um, all all genders, all ethnicities, ages, locations, industries, and there's just more of a appetite and understanding around the different shapes of um, successful entrepreneurs, and I, and we think that's pretty exciting as well. It goes back to Reed's point about why we why we do this in the first place. The whole purpose of Masters of Scale is to democratize entrepreneurship, to bring like great mentorship and great strategy to um, to, to everyone who can benefit from it. From the starting out entrepreneur in a in a, in a remote area where they can't find the mentorship around them, to the um, to the CEO at the top of um, their game who wants to listen in on a peer conversation. But all of that inspires us. Reed June, thank you so much for joining us at Wired Foresight. Um, really enjoying Masters of Scale and a big fan of the, the podcast and, and the book as well. Uh, so many great learnings in there, I'm sure, for, for Wired readers and listeners. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Greg, thank you. Thanks so much, Greg. Thank you. If you're enjoying this series, please do give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow the wide community. Thank you so much. <laughs>